Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy, and I am here with super producer Alex for another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. Alex, I'm glad you're here. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Now, Alex, when was the last time you were on a boat? When was the last time I was in water? Good Lord. Um, I know, you're not very seafaring, are you? Yeah, well, I live in Colorado. We don't have an ocean here. We're a little bit landlocked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, last time I was on a boat, you know, I really can't remember. Well, you know, um, I... Was I did one of those booze cruises down in Savannah? Uh huh. Oh, Savannah. Yeah. <laughs> with, with one of my you don't clients. need to be on a boat to be drunk in Savannah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was on a booze cruise. I you didn't just go down to River Street, and you, you, I mean, you can't even walk anywhere because your feet are stuck to the ground well, from all the sticky true. crap on the asphalt. <laughs> that is true. There's a little bit of a party area in uh, mm-hmm. in Savannah, but but they they ran one of those big paddle wheel boats out of one of those old Mark Twain looking boats, mm-hmm. and um. You know what came up next to us several times with these huge tankers that they run up that river there. Are those things just mind-blowingly massive or what? They are so big, and I think those are the little ones that they. Yeah, I mean they, they get like like the, the side the gunnels on the ship, like you know the side of the ship at the you know where you would stand at the edge of the ship. It could be like two hundred feet high on some of those things. They're they just, are obscenely large. Yeah, there's and, and then you're in this little bitty paddle wheel steam operation thing and, and, and it's hard to feel like, threatened what? by the thing because it's so big it's like looking at a planet i mean it's like yeah. it, it doesn't matter if i steer or not i'm just gonna bounce off that sucker well unless it goes right <laughs> through you unless it goes right through you. and you know since then you know what's happened is facebook keeps sending me these videos on boat accidents oh really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you get videos about aussie man no you know who aussie man is aussie, aussie man, man reviews reviews right Yeah, I'm sure you've seen them at some point because they seem to be everywhere. But this is just an Australian dude. He's funny. He's just funny as hell. And he'll go and find all these, you know, stupid video clips from TikTok or whatever, and then put them together into a compilation, and then he'll narrate them. And it's a, oh, watch this little bugger. He's, oh, he's screwed there. Nah, he ran into the pole here and something like that. But anyway, he's hilarious. Well, he should do some more boat reviews. I'm pretty sure he does something on boats. Okay, well, we need to look that up because he he needs to do this one, which is, um, I talked to Kit Shalel. Uh-huh. You know Kit? I don't, but Bloom, I'm- Bloomberg writer. Okay. With Bloomberg. Decided he was going to investigate what he thought was probably some insurance- fraud on the i'm going to try to get this boat name right volanti brilliante virtuoso okay the brilliant virtuoso it's not an american ship you can clearly (laughs) (laughs) but but that or we can't read (laughs) it could could go either way probably a combination of both okay so (laughs) but here's what happened these People that they thought were pirates got on the boat in the middle of the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. Way far away over by Somalia. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't too different than that. Um, uh, what was that Tom Hanks movie? Uh, Captain somebody, Morgan. Yeah, the Captain, Captain somebody. Tom Hanks movie. Anyway, yeah. uh, 
they got on there, started this big fire on this oil tanker. And you got to understand how much of a problem lighting an oil tanker on fire is. There's uh, $77 million of oil on board, I believe. That's nothing. That's like, no. That's that's, that's a lot of oil. That's a lot of oil. But it's um, got to be more than that. I would guess seven hundred million over seventy seven. But anyway, go nonetheless, on. Nonetheless, these pirates got. I'm on. googling this. Go okay. on. Okay, the pirates got on. They set the boat on fire. No one really fought them, and then they left. And apparently, there's this whole dark underbelly of maritime shipping. It is not a classy operation. It is. Filled. It never has been. Yeah, it, I've heard well, that story before. I don't know anything about it, but Kit is going to tell us all about it and how. He got into this whole world for for his book, uh, which is book. The book's called Dead in the Water, mm-hmm. and it is absolutely fascinating, but it is real life. And he gets in and he got threatened himself some. He, he couldn't even say some of the stuff that he found on this podcast because people may come after him. So it was a, a really, really huge, uh, probably insurance fraud situation. That is a crazy situation. So he was dealing with AK-47s and ransom and mm-hmm. something like that. But okay, so I just Googled this. 70,000 barrels is the minimum that these suckers are carrying, up to okay. 200,000. So, uh, and, and when you're talking about barrels, what's the going price for a barrel of oil? It's probably 150 probably bucks right a barrel. Probably yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, that's a lot of money. That's and, close to a billion. Yeah. Is and what that so is. Uh, this, this ship was kind of like on its last legs and mm-hmm. he, he okay that's a best. problem right there well you don't want to sink the thing the fact that you're on a ship with legs i mean should tell you well, that you're in the that, wrong place well that is a problem that is a problem. <laughs> well, but that's the best i can do today sorry so so when you get out there in the middle of the ocean ain't nobody gonna come save you for any time soon yeah, because I mean, they, their legs are not doing them any good at all. <laughs> anyway, Captain is, Phillips, that was the name of it. Captain, Captain Phillips. Phillips, right. That yes. was the Tom Hanks movie. So I think what we should do is talk to Kit, find out about his investigation on this tanker uh-huh. and see what he has to say. Well, the sheer logistics of all that oil is crazy. And then a fire on top of it. But yeah, let's do that. Let's go let's here. Let's go we talk to Kit. Right. Okay. It's Tracy, and I have a super cool interview today on truth, lies, and cover-ups. And I have Kit Shalel. Did I say that right, Shalel? That's right, yeah. Got it. And um, you were partners writing a book, Dead in the Water, which I have just been fascinated by this story. Uh, because I guess, you know, when it comes to maritime things and ships, and like I have no exposure to that in my life at all. And here you find this story about a tanker, like insurance fraud on an oil tanker. And now this tank, let's talk about these tankers for a minute. Three football, three football fields long, 12 tanks on them and a hundred million dollars of oil. So there, let's just jump in. What happened to this particular ship? Because this story is just long and it, it just keeps going. It's so fascinating. So, yeah, this our, our story starts with this oil tanker, as you say. It's called the Berlante Virtuoso. And it was, I guess you could call it, a sort of workhorse of global commerce. It's, uh, you know, kind of a rusty old boat um, of the type that carries oil in between the oil fields of the Middle East 
uh, and Europe uh, to the US and out to Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about 20 years, 20 years old, this festival. It wasn't in great shape, but it was doing its job, you know, which was carrying all around, keeping the, the world economy turning. And this was back in 2011. It was attacked by armed men near the coast of Somalia um, in what looked to all the world like a pirate attack. But as we show in the book, turned out to be something a lot stranger. Well, let's talk about that, because when you say attack on a ship outside of Somalia, I think of that Tom Hanks movie. Yeah. Uh, but this so it wasn't it didn't really turn out that way. Like what? Like, let's go a little deeper. That, so that that Tom Hanks movie does a really good job, actually, of showing the reality of Somali piracy and what it was like, uh-huh. especially back then when there was an attack every couple of days. Uh, it was just rampant. And these guys with AK-47s would just show up alongside billion-dollar cargo ships with AK-47s and take control of them and, and ransom them for millions of dollars. It was happening all the time. Um, so everyone was on the lookout for it. But the Berlante Virtuoso incident was kind of weird because it happened in the middle of the night. Somali pirates don't normally work at night. It's hard enough to try and scale the side of a gigantic yeah. tanker without doing it under the cover of darkness. Um and it was also kind of weird that they boarded the ship, started a fire and left. Uh, it seemed to be like they went to all this trouble to gain a very valuable prize, which was this vessel, and then just set fire to it and left. It, it was commercially pointless. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. So it didn't make any sense. And I think r- right away, people were a bit suspicious about it. You know, this is shipping, dodgy things happening in shipping all the time. It still goes on. It's always been that way at sea. And so there were lots of people who were saying, you know, this doesn't look quite right. Well, now let's let's talk about this. So so how familiar are you with shipping? Like, I, I'm curious, how, how'd you end up in the middle of this story? Can you share that? I, I'm, and I'm a total landlubber like you. I, you know, I have I have no particular interest in ships or shipping. I've never been on oil, an oil tanker. Uh-huh. Uh, I've never really covered the industry as a journalist. Um, but I do have the fortune to be based in in London, where a lot of the sort of financial crime and criminality and fraud of the world ends up washing up. It does. Um, London's the biggest, yeah. one of the biggest spots for it. It's like a klepto hub, you know, all, all, the, all the money laundering comes to London, all the big ticket litigation comes to London. A lot of, and a lot of shady business ends up here, which, which we sort of deal with in our book. So I, I just went to a, I went to a conference in the city, uh, in the square mile, it was uh, very boring, apart from this very short section, a couple of slides, about this mysterious attack on an oil tanker. And when I saw the images of it, which is sort of this ship with belching out black smoke into the sky, and they mentioned that it might be linked to this organized criminal group operating out of the Middle East who had potentially murdered someone. You know, my my first reaction was, what the hell is this? Uh, And why don't I know more about it? Why isn't this everywhere, you know? But it was the the whole air of secrecy around this incident had, had pervaded everything for years. No one wanted to talk about it. To this day, you know, people in the in the London shipping world don't really like talking about it. Really? Okay. Yeah, so yeah. what 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 do you did you find why people don't want to talk about it? I mean, because all, all we got. Okay, so we're up to the point where some guys got on the ship and yeah. they set a fire and then they left. So yeah. so what? Where do we go from there? Well, I, d- I don't want to give away too many spoilers um, because the book is sort of all about unraveling that crime. But you know, I can say that. Uh, the shipping industry, maritime trade is, is just absolutely ripe for fraud. Uh-huh. Um, you have these, these huge high dollar value um, deals, transactions being yeah. carried out, you know, buying and selling $100 million worth of coil or oil or 
steel or whatever it is. Uh, and it's all done on paper. Um, you know, I, as a buyer, I can't physically be at port to check that my consignment of Barbie dolls from Taiwan um, is, is physically present and in order before being delivered to me in New Jersey. Right. Um, I, I have to do it on trust. I have to have a piece of paper in my hand that's been signed by someone saying this is the cargo. It's on its way. Yeah. So it's a kind of it's a, it's, it's it's this huge world of commerce that's that's done almost completely on paper. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's it's not very difficult for fraudsters to sort of forge those documents and do things like you know sell me ten million dollars worth of Barbie dolls and then never deliver them, or uh, send the Barbie dolls somewhere else and sell them somewhere else to make the money twice. These yeah, sorts of things twice. have been have been happening for decades uh-huh. and uh, on a very large scale that sort of uh, white collar crime has pervaded the top level of shipping and the Brillante Virtuoso is one of those cases where you know it was it was just this enormous hundred million dollar fraud that, that very nearly came off okay so they they set the fire they left what happened next well, the, the, the fire set off this chain of events that sort of echoed around the world. Any time a big oil tanker gets into trouble, it's, it's a global event. Uh, and the reason for that is not just all the money at stake, but you know, if, if, a, if a tanker carrying 100 million barrels of oil starts leaking all over the Gulf of Aden, it's going to be an environmental catastrophe. It's going to cost billions of dollars to clear up. Um, but it also, you know, it was, a, it was a significant event because if Somali pirates were now going to be attacking and blowing up commercial ships coming through the Suez Canal, that's a problem for the whole world economy. Mm-hmm. So it was a big enough deal that I think it got mentioned in a congressional hearing the next day in the States. Um, um, and obviously lots of people had lots of money at stake as well. The owners of the oil cargo, the owners of the ship, the insurers, crucially, who were on the hook for any damage that was caused, potentially looking at $100 million or more worth of payouts. So it set off this chain reaction of lots of people wanting to understand what happened to this ship. Okay. And then, so, so they're, they're all trying to understand in where, where do we go from there? Cause there's conflicting reports about what happened yeah. in there because there was, somebody said there was some rocket grenades used yeah. or grenade rockets. I don't, I don't have all my artillery <laughs> uh, <laughs> nomenclature down just right. But, um, but they don't really know if that happened and wasn't there like an investigator and he ended up getting uh yeah blown up what i mean what happened so uh in a similar way uh to if you're if your bathroom floods and you have to make a big insurance claim they need to send someone to survey the damage yeah that's what happens on a much larger scale in shipping so you know all over the world in every port there are these marine professionals whose job it is to go and do this surveying work and so the insurance industry hired this guy called David Mockett, British expat living out in Aden, mm-hmm. to go and board the ship and, and do a, a preliminary survey and send back his reports. Um, you know, he, he, he boarded the vessel, he took a load of pictures. He didn't see any evidence of rocket-propelled grenades or anything that looked like it might have caused an explosion in the engine room. Mm-hmm. And he sent these suspicious findings back to London. And unfortunately, he never got a chance to really unravel what really happened because... A few days later, his car was blown up and he was murdered. Yeah. Okay. So then, so we have this big, uh, like, we, we don't, we didn't really get a chance. Like, this guy didn't get a chance to really unravel it. Did anybody yeah. else? I mean, what, like, what, where, where did things, like, kind of shake out? Well, so, so what happens when a, when a major maritime incident occurs is there's always a huge insurance claim. I, I'm sure you remember when the Suez Canal got blocked. Oh, my God. By the Ever, by the ever Given. Uh-huh. And do you remember, for, for a week, all anyone could talk about was that ship. 
Yeah. And it was, you know, it was funny memes and pictures being sent over the world, but it was a big deal because it kind of jammed up global trade and cost yeah. a lot of people a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that turned into a lawsuit for being, being fought between insurers because, oh, you know, yeah. someone's, someone's got to pay for the, for the salvage job. Someone's uh-huh. got to pay for the rescue. Someone's got to pay for all the people who have lost money because their, their cargo hasn't arrived. Mm-hmm. And that's always the insurance industry. So whenever something like this happens, it always ends up being a bun fight between massive insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened in the case of the Brillante Virtuoso. The insurers with the most to lose decided to hire more investigators to unravel what had happened mm-hmm. and fight the claim. The ship owner was Greek and he was claiming uh, $70 plus million dollars in compensation from his insurance contract for what he said was an act of piracy. So they, the insurance industry hired these two former London police detectives oh, okay. who now worked in the private sector. And they spent the next sort of three or four years picking apart this conspiracy. And you know what they found was this remarkably audacious crime, which was you know, insurance fraud on a sort of unprecedented scale. Uh-huh. Now, okay, so help me out here. So the boat, is set set on fire yeah. someone eventually has to put this fire out right i mean because did the boat sink like what what actually happened to the boat so the boat the boat didn't sink um but it was a uh, what they call a, a constructive total loss okay um which means it is damaged beyond repair mm-hmm. the fire completely gutted the engine room and wiped out the bridge um the fire was eventually extinguished um after burning for hours and hours but the ship was a write-off. So, you know, they, they towed it up the coast, basically, okay. um, examined it properly, and then decided it, it was worth almost nothing, and it was sent to a scrapyard. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, what about the oil in it? Did the oil drain out or burn or what? They they managed to do a ship-to-ship transfer, sort of siphoning the oil off. Got it. Um, now, of course, that was really great news for the salvage crew because when you have a major accident at sea, the people whose job it is to rescue the cargo and the ship are, are salvage crews. And they get paid a percentage of whatever the value of the cargo is. So it's, it's big money when it goes right. Uh, and it's nothing when it goes wrong. They get nothing if they fail. But the salvage crews in this job, you know, because they saved, uh, you know, $100, uh, $100 million worth of oil, they got a, I think they ended up getting $30 million plus. Oh, wow. For their efforts. So big, lots of money. Yeah. Okay. So then the, what happened with the police investigator or the, police turned private investigators like did did they i mean where where did they end up well so they ended up getting getting involved in you know what looked to all the world like organized crime it was um they started out what you know doing a a, a fairly bog standard for for, for them insurance job mm-hmm. and it pulled them into this world of kind of criminality and murder and you know these these criminal gangs that operate in the world of shipping uh-huh. And um, uh, yeah, it, you know, it became a very dangerous situation for everyone involved. You know, as well as the British guy who was murdered, um, there were threats made against various people who went around asking questions about the Brillante virtuoso. There was a Greek lawyer beaten up on the streets of Piraeus. There was another Greek whistleblower who had to be evacuated from the country by armed men because wow, um, it, it really seemed like they were going to kill him. Uh-huh. Um, so they got sort of sucked into this dangerous conspiracy. And and then because a judge ruled and were they paid or or not like did the, the judge ruled fraud didn't he or what because because this did go to court yeah the judge the judge found fraud after after a long legal battle and lots of back and forth the judge found fraud um, and said the insurers didn't have to pay um, but it was kind of a pyrrhic victory because um, they hadn't really won won anything meaningful against the ship owner who engineered the fraud 
this Greek guy who, who profited from it, you know, kind of got away scot-free. And amazingly, he's still out there running a shipping business. He still does business with the major insurance insurance entities that that accused him of fraud only a couple of years ago. It, nothing, nothing's changed really. The, the shipping world just keeps on turning. Okay, so let let's talk about this. You have a boat. Yeah. You you get some pirates. Yeah. Hire your pirates. You set yeah. the boat on fire, and then where's the profit? Wouldn't it be better to keep the boat running and sell the oil? Like, I don't, I'm trying to put all this, like, where does this really come together? Well, so the, the example we use is imagine you run a dive bar mm-hmm. okay, in some American city and it's hemorrhaging money. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not making any money. It hasn't done for years, but you've got, you've got buildings insurance. Um, okay. And that's, that's for $500,000, let's say. Mm-hmm. So if there happens to be a fire one night at your bar and it burns to the ground, you walk away with half a million dollars and you're freed uh, from the loss making business that, that has ensnared you. You know, the, the same principle applies in shipping. Shipping is a, is a brutal business. When it's good, it's, it's wildly profitable, which it mm-hmm. is right now. Yeah. Um, but when times are bad, it's rough. And uh, this old tanker was losing, you know, millions and millions of dollars for its owner. It was coming towards the end of its life. Oh, he was going. He was going to have to scrap it soon anyway, mm-hmm. and and scrapping a massive ship is actually you know not something that's very easy to do. Um, you have to send it to sort of licensed scrapyards and do it properly, and there are environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. It's a whole headache. The actual value of the ship at this point, I would say probably five million dollars because it's so old, uh-huh. but it was insured for fifty. Oh, got so, it. Okay. You know the the economics of scuttling of, of sort of insurance fraud in a maritime setting makes perfect sense. And mm-hmm. people have been doing this for like 3000 years. It's one of the oldest financial crimes of all. Wow. Okay. So then you see this at a conference and you go, wait a minute, <laughs> something's going on. Like, how do you go from uh, that to being like authoring this amazing book, which I don't know if we've said the title yet, it's called dead in the water. Like, how, how, t- take us through that, because I know you kind of ran into some threats yourself, like asking too many yeah. questions. Like, how does that go? Well, I, you know, I, uh, my job is investigative journalist. Um, so, you know, I get paid to take big, messy problems like this and unravel them over a period of months. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole process you, you go through, you know, which is at the most basic level, finding and speaking to every single person who's had any interaction with this ship. Uh-huh. Whether that's a Filipino sailor way out in the ocean, or an insurance executive, or a you know police detective, or whoever it is, you know people in Greece, ship owners, um, salvage crews, you speak to every single person you can. Uh-huh. You pull all the evidence together. You trawl legal documents um, and sort of maritime filings from around the world, and you sort of have to piece together this massive jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. Um, what what we saw, the image that I saw at that conference was kind of one piece uh-huh. of a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, and it took us. It took me and Matt Campbell, God, maybe four years to really finally sit back and say, huh, we kind of, we understand this conspiracy now. We understand what motivated it. We understand who did it and why and sort of how it sits in the, in the context of the context of international crime. Wow. Okay. So here's what I am curious about. Um, because, you know, I'm a body language expert and, and I always, uh, and I focus on deception and I'm always curious because in invest reporters have a, have a sense about them, right? They, Uh they all do. And so how, how do you know? Okay. First question, two questions here. When, when you're trying to get information out of someone, 
what is your technique to open them up and get them talking oh. in a situation like this? And because it's uh, it's sketchy, like for sure. Yeah. There, there's a lot that's gone wrong here and a lot of people with interest, like big money interest. But then how do you know they're lying to you? So two questions. Uh, right. Yeah. How, how do you start the conversation? I think um, as a reporter, what you're really doing is you're you're trying to pitch a project to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, my project is taking something shady and exposing it to the light of publicity, right? Mm-hmm. I, right. I, I want I want to let everyone in the world know that about the horrible things that happened to this ship and the people whose lives were destroyed by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for someone to talk to me, they've kind of got to agree that's a good thing to do. Right. If they don't agree that's a good thing for me to be doing, they're probably not going to talk to me anyway, and there's little I can do to change their mind. But in the case of this ship, there were lots of people who, had come across it in their day jobs as you know, insurance executives or investigators, and it left mm-hmm. them with this kind of sick feeling mm-hmm. of injustice. You know, they'd they'd encountered this horrible thing, and it kind of ate away at them. So when someone comes calling and says, "Look, I want to write about this. I, I want the world to know," you know, it's actually it's a nice conversation to have. It's not you don't feel like you're manipulating people or trying to trick them. Uh-huh. You're, you're, the end the end goal is the same for for you and them, which is to uh-huh. get this out there. Um, so as long as you they, you can sort of get them to trust that you're not going to screw them over, um, and in this case, get them to trust that you're not going to put them in danger, which right. is um, a, re- a real problem. As long as you can establish that sort of that grounding of trust, you're all working towards the same thing. Um, the the flip side of that is that some of the people, obviously, who we had to talk to, were directly involved in the conspiracy, um, and they're not going to have any interest in you telling the story of this big crime. Right. So that's 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 kind of a different conversation. Now, how did how did that pan out for you? Because because you describe some of these characters in their book, they're greasy and nasty and <laughs> like and, and here you do you call them? Do you just wander in one day? Like, how does how does all that really come together? Yeah, you just make contact. It's, you know, it's the same as I would anyone uh-huh. these days. Thanks to the Internet, it's not very hard to find people uh-huh. um, in shipping. It's a bit harder. I would say some of the people there were some. Uh, Yemeni individuals who were involved in, you know, planning what happened to the Berlante Virtuoso, let's say, um, who just vanished into the ether. And they were really hard to find. Um, I, I tracked one of them down to, 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 like, to, to Egypt, uh, like a suburb of Cairo. Uh-huh. Um, but it took me such a long time to find the guy. And then it's, it's kind of an awkward conversation because, you're, you know, you're saying to them, I'm writing a book, it's about criminality, you know, and you're going to be in the book. so it is it's definitely an awkward conversation but again it you know comes down to self-interest all these conversations come down to Mm self-interest there was a reason people talk to me and it's not because i'm a nice guy and it's not because you know um they're trying to do me a favor it's because it's in their interest to do so Mm -hmm. and the the reality is you know this book is going to happen um if you were involved in the ship there's a good chance you're going to be going to be in the book Mm -hmm. i might have information from other sources about your actions and i'm going to publish them Oh, boy. So, you know, it actually is better for you if you and I sit down and talk it out and you can tell me your side of it and we can go through this piece by piece Uh and really fit it together. That's that's a better proposition than, you know, I'm just going to write what I'm going to write about you and you have no say in the matter. Um, And that works up to a point. But at the very top level of the sort of the master criminal masterminds behind this, you know, their their strategy for the book was complete silence, sort of head in the sand, ostrich stuff. Uh the ship owner went to tremendous lengths to avoid having a conversation with me and Matt. We uh, we called him, we faxed him, we emailed him, we contacted his 
his publicity people, his former lawyers. No one would put us in touch. And there was even this surreal moment where we sent a couriered letter to his place of work. He, he runs this big Greek shipping ferry company. Uh-huh. But if you've been a holiday in Greece, you might even have, have taken one of his vessels. It's called Sea Jets. Uh-huh. And we know he's the owner. So we sent a, we sent a couriered letter to the Sea Jets headquarters uh, just, to, just to invite him to sort of participate and answer some of the uh-huh. allegations against him. And the, the person on the front desk sent it away saying that there was no one by that name at the address. You know, it was kind of this, this ridiculous game of cat and mouse. Uh-huh. You know, he, he's never uttered a single word to us. And I'm sure he never will. Well, no, not after the book, for sure not. <laughs> um, so, so then was there anyone else who wouldn't talk to you? Oh, lots of people. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about uh, a major a major criminal conspiracy, and you'll know this from talking to your law enforcement sources as well. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's actually quite difficult to, to get away with this stuff mm-hmm. without, you know, dozens or hundreds of people being sort of exposed in some way or another to your actions. Mm-hmm. And that's especially true with a, with a ship uh, and a voyage like this. You've not only got the crew, you've got the captain, you've got the owners of the cargo, you've got the charterers of the ship, you've got the owner of the ship, you've got the insurers, you've got all these diff- dozens and dozens of people who are sort of intimately involved in what happened to this ship. And each one of them will have a little piece of information about what went down. Um, and it's incredibly difficult to make sure that all those people keep their mouths shut. Mm-hmm. Um, now, look, they, in this case, they tried. There were threats thrown around left, right, and center. Uh, one Greek sailor was told, if you ever talk about this, you're going to end up in the ground. Um, they tried their best, but, you know, it, as a good detective knows, it's, it's really hard to, to keep secrets secret. People like to talk, um, and that was true here, too. Wow. So who are you the most surprised that, you, that would talk? And what was that piece of information? Oh, that's a good question. I'll give you, I'll, give you, I'll tell you something that didn't make it into the book. Okay. The, the guy that we managed to track down in Egypt, he'd been a Yemeni sort of businessman who, had, who was in business with some of the Greek conspirators who, who planned the hijacking. Mm-hmm. And everyone had told us that he was this terrifying thug and that, uh, you know, he was either dead or would never talk to us. But we tracked him down to Egypt, um, and it wasn't me that spoke to him. It, I, I wasn't. I couldn't go to the country at the time. It had to be a sort of uh, uh, another journalist who we hired to go and represent us. But he sat down, did this incredible interview with this guy who was accused of you know all sorts of terrible things, and it was really interesting. It, it, the things that he was happy to admit to, and the things that he wouldn't touch, were very interesting. Oh, really? So, yeah, like he he readily readily uh, fessed up to carrying a gun around. Uh-huh. He said, "No, this is Yemen. It's a matter of honor. Everyone carries a gun in Yemen." Uh-huh. He readily, he was readily to to accept that, you know, he'd had a role in what happened to the ship. Um, he'd he had he a would, what? He'd had a he'd had a role. I mean, he said he just oh, okay. he said he was just doing paperwork, okay. and he said he never went out to sea. Um, uh, he, there were a good few things that he was willing to talk about. He talked about the Greeks, you know, how unscrupulous they were. He was trying to shift the blame to others. I think it was clear. But the one area he wouldn't talk about was the death of the British surveyor. He wouldn't even acknowledge that he knew that guy existed or that he'd heard of the murder. Um, but it, when you're doing an interview like that, you know, I always find what they won't tell you or what they choose to be dishonest about can be as instructive as the truthful things that are discussed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Because you got to listen to what's not being said. Yeah. And, and that can be pretty interesting, too. We just saw that over here with um, Amber Heard <laughs> and Johnny Depp. Oh, my gosh. Wow, I've yeah. never seen a liar like Amber Heard. That is nuts. Um, OK, but I digress. So 
what kind of threats did did you encounter? Well, so personally, in being maps, um, there's always a level of distance as a reporter. In most countries in the world, as a journalist, you are kind of you're separate from that world. You're not part of the right. of the of the criminal underworld. So you, you know you, you don't often get dragged into it. Um, the real risk in this story was to the people who spoke to us, and um, that was a that was something that kept me up at night. Um, it, at least one person died over the ship, maybe two. Um, mm. And people who work in the maritime world are kind of vulnerable. You know, the sailors, they don't have a lot of legal support. You know, they don't have a lot of money sometimes. When they're out at sea, they're basically slaves. You know, they have to do what the captain says. Mm -hmm. There's no law enforcement. There's no scrutiny. Like it is, you can see why people think very hard about blowing the whistle on on crimes that take place at sea. It's a really tough thing to do. Um, But there was this one sailor that that my my colleague Matt tracked down, this Filipino guy, and, and amazingly, no one had ever spoken to him about this 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 mm-hmm. incident. Um, he'd been interviewed briefly after the attack, but um, none of the police or investigators who were looking at the Berlante had had managed to find him. Mm-hmm. But Matt just found him on Facebook. Apparently, Filipino sailors like using Facebook because it keeps them in touch <laughs> with their families. Yeah. So Matt tracked him down, and they had this surreal conversation where he just opened up. You know, he'd been waiting for years for someone to ask him what happened that night, uh-huh. and. Um, you know, he said the ship owner and the chief engineer came into his room and threatened him with a gun and said, if you ever tell the truth about what happens here, we'll kill you and your family. Um, but he said, look, I, I, you know, I'm a religious person. I want to tell the truth. I'm not afraid to die. So, of course, Matt, Matt gets off the phone and we have to sit down and have a discussion about what we're going to do with this because we don't want to make his life worse. Um, right. uh, we have to be really mindful of, of his security. And in the end, we decided the safest thing to do was to identify him in the book. At least, you know, bring him out of the darkness and into the light where people can see him. Uh-huh. Um, that way, if anything happens to him, you know, it's, it, you'd have to be pretty uh, brazen as a criminal to do something once someone had been the subject of a, mag- a magazine article in Bloomberg. Right. So, so, you know, but that was a really tough moment for us just because we were, we, were, we were deeply worried about him. And there were things that we did to help him as well. We put him in touch with law enforcement and we put him in touch with the security people for the insurers gave him numbers he could call if he needed to get out somewhere in a hurry. You know, we tried to help him as well. But, yeah, it, I've done a lot of difficult stories as a journalist, and this, this one has caused me to lose more sleep than, than any other. Wow. Now, um, is, is have you heard from him lately? How's he doing? I haven't heard from him in a long time, no. we haven't. I mean, these, these guys, they, they spend seven, eight months of a year on ships. Uh-huh. And uh, I would imagine he's pretty sick of being asked about the Volante Virtuoso as well. Probably. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. Are are you sick of being asked about it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I you know listen. Uh, I still have the hunger to really keep picking at this thing because mm-hmm. after four or five years, there's still things I don't really have answers to. There was a second death of a British guy who was a lawyer who, it turned out, had had some minor involvement in the legal stuff that happened after the ship was attacked, mm-hmm. and he he was found dead in his apartment. You know, a few months after David Mockett in Aden. Uh-huh. They were friends. They knew each other. And just, it was such a big coincidence for these two English guys, both involved in this one ship, both living in the port city of Aden, both personally connected to each other, to both die in suspicious circumstances in such a short time. It was really weird. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, but we never quite got to the bottom of what happened to the second person. And I, and I, I know we probably never will. Uh-huh. But I keep waiting for someone just to, someone to contact me to, to have found the book in some distant shore. And get in touch and say, look, I, you know, 
I, I, I know this. I was, I was there. I saw, I can tell you the whole thing. Wow. Okay. Now, um, are you, cause you know, you, you're a guy with a job, right. And, and yeah. you wrote a magazine article turned into a book and uh, like super intriguing, like, but, but you're still curious about the story. What are you, are you still looking at this? Are you on to the next thing? Like what's going on? Um, I'm onto lots of other different things, but I don't think I'll ever stop, um, you know, having questions about this shit. And I would encourage anyone out there, you know, there are, there are still people we haven't spoken to who would love to speak to. Mm-hmm. There's one particular guy, Somalian businessman, who was up to his neck in, in, in the fate of the Brillante Virtuoso. And we were desperate to speak to him. And at one point, we managed to get through to him on the phone. This was years ago. Mm-hmm. This was before we decided to write the book. And then when we tried again, once we got our book deal, and we were really you know, putting a lot of time and resource into unpicking mm-hmm. this thing, we discovered that he'd been thrown in jail in the United Arab Emirates, um, where he remains to this day. And we tried so hard to get access to him. But um, if I could sit down for an hour with him, I'd, I'd pay for a flight. I'd be there tomorrow. You know, I think he, he would have secrets to tell. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So we got to get people to get out and get this book. Where can they get it? It's called Dead in the Water. Yeah, you can find the book uh, at, at any bookstore. If they don't have it, go and ask for it. It's obviously, it's on Amazon. Um, it's on it's on Kindle as well. And there's, uh, there's a really good audio book as well. Okay. Okay. Now, if people have information on this, <laughs> where can they get a hold of you? What's the best way to do that? I'm on Twitter. Like all journalists, I'm on Twitter, probably too much. But I'm uh, I'm definitely the only Kit Shalel on Twitter, um, and my my contact details are on there. Anyone can contact me anytime. All right, well, y'all found it, you, or you heard it. You can be part of solving a big old mystery here with a big old ship. So, so Kit, thank you so much for taking a minute to come on Truth Lies and Cover Ups. You're just fascinating. I think you're fantastic. Tracy, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.